In your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah 65, the text, the sermon will be verses 1 and 2, but as I start, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure unto their lap payment for their former deeds. Our text today will be verses 1 and 2 for the sermon. Uh, This text is actually quoted by the Apostle Paul over in Romans chapter 10. So in Romans chapter 10, verse 20 and 21, Paul quotes the uh, Septuagint version of this and says, And Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. There in Romans 10, he's making the case that verse 1 prophesies about the acceptance of the gospel by the Gentiles. And in verse 2, he sees a prophecy about the rejection of the gospel by national Israel. Charles Spurgeon preached on this text and gave the title of the sermon as the very bold prophecy. And so that's the sermon title I'm going with today. I'm going to steal that sermon title. I don't think he'll mind much. He's been dead for 130 years, so I don't think he'll care. Um, Today, I'll be bold enough to press these verses on your conscience. There is much here about God's grace that chooses people for salvation. There is much here about that. There is much here about man's responsibility to believe the gospel, whether he is elect or not. If you choose to reject the gospel, you're not going to be able to blame God. Although it's true that there's election. I'm not denying that. What I'm saying is you're responsible either way to believe. And there is much here that amounts to an invitation to repent and believe. And so we will look at the availability of God in the text, in the first part of verse 1, the announcement of God in the text in the next part of verse 1, and the appeal of God in verse 2. My prayer is that if you consider yourself a part of God's people, but you have not repented and believed, that you will. There's people that, you know, there are people that will think that they're Christians when they're not. Jesus was very clear about that in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody loves the Sermon on the Mount until you get to the end of it. <laughs> you get to Matthew 7, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons and perform many mighty works 
he will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. And so we have here a call. We have some very clear definitions here about the gospel and what goes on with it. And there's a very clear call to repentance and faith. And if you think you're a Christian because you come to this church and that's all the reason you think that you're a Christian, I hope that you repent and believe the gospel because that's not the gospel. The gospel is not, I'm a member by the Word Baptist Church. The gospel is not, uh, I, um, I go to by the Word Baptist Church. The gospel is not, my parents went to by the Word Baptist Church. The gospel is, Jesus Christ died for sinners. He rose again from the dead. And he calls you to repent and believe the gospel. Amen. If you don't have any repentance, you don't, there has been no salvation. So the availability of God is the first thing we'll look at in the first part of verse 1. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. Now, if you read the King James, it's translated differently. I am sought, I am found. But there is a reason why it's translated this way in the ESV. We'll get to that in a minute. But the thing I want to point out first is that he is available to those who seek him rightly. God is available to those who seek him rightly. Problem is, nobody does that by themselves. No one's going to seek him unless God does a work. Unless God does something in their life to cause them to do the seeking. And that's where the right seeking comes from. Is when God does the work in someone's life to cause that to happen. The word in the Hebrew, it's a verb. It means to seek with care or to inquire. He's saying you can seek. God is available to seek with care and to inquire. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. Now that's the kicker here. How do you seek without asking? This is the great question for the megachurch movement in the American Christianity. They say, well, we're seeker-sensitive. Who does that? Romans chapter 3 says very clearly they don't. No one seeks after God. So you're going to build an entire movement on something that doesn't exist? Unless God does it, <laughs> right? They don't say that part of it. They did not seek for him. They do not seek for him in the text. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. Go back to Isaiah chapter 11 for a second. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. That word inquire is the same Hebrew term as the one for uh, ask, after. There's coming a day. We're getting a little bit of an allusion here in Isaiah 11 to what we're about to learn a little bit later in this text. The nations will inquire one day. They will seek. Not just the Jewish people, the people who are part of the covenant, but people outside of the covenant, the peoples, the nations, they will one day inquire. Isaiah chapter 58, verse 2. And the fact that you're here today, by the way, is proof of that. God has done that work in you, and that's why you're here today. I don't know of anybody here 
that's a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I think we're all Gentiles here, right? And so God is doing this thing. It's happening. Isaiah 58, verse 2, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness. It's talking about Israel. And he says, As if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgments of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. He's, he's mocking them here. He's like, look, you claim this, but it's not reality. You claim to be part of the covenant, but you're not. You're not acting like someone who's part of the covenant acts. You're not walking in obedience to the covenant. So they do not seek for him. They do not ask for him. And then in Romans, as I've already said, in Romans chapter 10, verse 20, what the Apostle Paul is doing over there, he actually applies it to the Gentiles. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, this is the Gentiles who is talking about there. They're the ones who are not seeking. They're the ones who are not looking. And yet God chooses to reach out to the Gentiles with the gospel. So that's what it says that Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. And at that point, every one of you should say amen. Or not. Amen. Amen. You should thank God for that. You weren't looking for him. He came to you with the gospel. He brought conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You heard the preaching of the word. And it drove you to your knees and you said, I got nowhere else I can go. I got to go to Christ. I will arise and go to Jesus. Right? That's what it better have happened to you. If not, you better repent today. Because that's how it works. They did not seek for him. They did not ask for him. And yet God does the seeking. He does the finding. Edward J. Young, in his commentary on Isaiah, says, God here speaks to the Gentiles who in contrast to the Jews have received his grace even though they had not asked for it. You might find this hard to believe, but you're not God. You might find this hard to believe, but God's got, a, he's got more power than you do. And when he decides he's going to get his man, he's going to get his woman, there's no way. You're done. Chalk it up. You're going to repent and you're going to believe. A team of wild horses could not keep you from it. So he's available to those who seek him rightly. He permits himself to be consulted. He permits himself to be consulted. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. Uh, The verb is passive and reflexive here, and it means I permitted myself to be consulted, literally, is what E.J. Young says in his commentary. So he does that. So you need to grasp this. Those who seek him do so by his permission. If there's ever been in your life a point where you said, man, I really want to know God, it didn't come from you. It didn't come from you. It was something that God did. He gave permission. He, he, he permitted this to happen. And those who seek him do so by permission. Those who find him do so by permission. I want you to consider this from Isaiah 65. We're going to go to Ephesians 1 in a minute. But I'll tell you, it's right here in Isaiah 65. In the first seven verses, well, from verse like 2 down to verse 7, 
you've got a list of the sins of apostate Israel. And then there are promises to the true Israel, the remnant, in verses 8 through 10. In those verses, we've already read 1 through 7, look at verse 8. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it, so I will do for my servants' sake and not destroy them all. So we're talking about a remnant. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down, for my people who have sought me. So in verse 9, it's promised that the elect will dwell in the mountains, the chosen. Some versions actually translate, the King James translates that elect. So in verse 9, you've got the elect who receive this inheritance in the mountains. But um, this elect, in verse 10, are the ones who seek God. That's what it says at the end of verse 10. I've made the valley of Achor a place for Herod's to lie down for my people who what? Who have sought me. How'd they do that? Well, they were elect. It's simple. That's what the text is saying. I'm not making anything up, not reading into it. I'm telling you what the text says. If that sounds like Ephesians 1, it is because it does sound like Ephesians 1. Go over to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Did you get that in verse 4? He chose you. If you're a believer, it's not because you're smarter than everybody else. The reason that you came to Christ isn't because you got a high IQ. The reason that you came is because he chose you. And if he didn't choose you, you would still be rebelling against him. He chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Oh, by the way, he didn't just choose you to give you your get-out-of-hell-free card. He chose you for that you would, there would be a change in your life. If there's been no change in your life, there's been no salvation. Because he's called you to be holy and blameless before him. And, and he didn't do this because he's mean. Because the next part of the verse says, In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. He predestined us. He set a fence around us is what the word means in the Greek. Say predestined doesn't mean predestined. Predestined means he set a fence around you (laughs) and then he chose you inside the fence, right? He predestined you for that for adoption as sons. Not Again, not because he's mean but because so that he could make you a child of God. That doesn't make God some big cosmic meaning. No. He lo- you deserve hell. You deserve hell. In love he predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ. In verse 7, In him we have redemption through his 
blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Again, not mean. This is all good. Which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance. Remember the inheritance in Isaiah 65 on the mountains? You've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. It's not about us. It's all about Him. It's all to His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So when did that happen? It all happened in reality. It was chosen, you were chosen, you were predestined. Before the foundation of the world, when did it happen? In time and space, it happened when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. We're going to talk about belief in just a second. Those who find him do so by permission. But you're still called to believe. And you're also, by the way, like I mentioned earlier, called to repent. So that's the first thing here we were looking at. The availability of God. Now the next part of verse 1 is the announcement of God. Listen to the announcement of God. I said, here I am, here I am. Or in King James, behold, behold. Behold me, behold me. The announcement of God is that you must look. That's what it means. When it says, look, you know, here I am, here I am, behold, it all means to look. The repetition means that it's emphatic. This is urgent. It's urgent. If you don't know Christ, this is the most important thing on your calendar ever. <laughs> ever. You need to repent. You need to come to faith in Christ. You must behold him. You must look at him. You must reply to the call, here I am. Here I am. It's emphatic. In the Hebrew, it emphasizes immediacy. Right now. Right now. Spurgeon said, Dear soul, if you have looked to Christ, it is because Christ has looked at you and influenced you to look at him. And that's what's going on here. If you're here under the sound of my voice, here in the preaching of the gospel, that God is putting that call out right now, through the preaching of the Word of God. And you must repent quickly. You must believe quickly. You must behold Him. Andrew Gray was a Scottish covenanter. He said this about the text, Isaiah 65. It is the duty of all those that hear this excellent gospel to whom the glad tidings of salvation are preached to behold Christ, to look at Him. And there are some verses that will say this in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 42, verse 1. 
Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He'll bring forth justice to the nations. He's talking about the Messiah, the coming Messiah. He's saying, Behold him. Behold Christ. Isaiah 45, verse 22, the text that's uh, known because uh, this is a text that was preached when Charles Spurgeon came to faith in Christ. Isaiah 45, 22, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. There is no other. Behold him. Say, well, give me some New Testament. John chapter 20, verse 27. John 20, verse 27. He's talking to Thomas. Remember this? He said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. He says, look at me, Thomas. Look at me and don't be disbelieving, but believe when you look at me. He's risen from the dead. He's conquered the grave at that point. You must look. Whoever you are, I don't know what you think, uh, how long you've been coming, whatever. I don't know what you think about salvation. I don't know what you think about the gospel, but what you should think is this. You should look at yourself and see nothing but just a wreck. You should see your sin when you look at yourself. You should see your rebellion against God. You've lied, you've stolen, you've taken God's name in vain. You've done all those things that the commandments that we heard about today talk about. The law was there for you to, to read together at the beginning of the service. Those things, our disobedience to that law, is what condemns us to an eternal hell. We deserve it. If you look at yourself, you'll see that. If you're honest with yourself, you'll see that. But if you look at Christ, you won't see any of that. If you look at Christ, you won't see any of it. You'll see beauty. You'll see his holiness. You'll see the fact that he is God in the flesh. He died for sinners. He rose from the dead. And you must look to him and nothing else. I got no other. We have no other religious thing for you to look at here today. We're going to point you to Christ. Look to him. Behold, John 1.29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look at him, don't look at anything else. So you must look, but here's the thing, you're unlikely to follow. Here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. You're unlikely to to follow. You've not called on him. That's what it's saying here in the text. The nation that was not called by my name. The Maz- I don't understand why the ESV translated it this way, honestly. The uh, Hebrew text, the Masoretic text, translates, which did not call on my name. So here it reads in the ESV that a nation that was not called by my name, it sounds a little bit different than to people with a nation which did not call on my name. So that's why I'm saying you're unlikely to follow. You've not called on him. They did not call on his name. You can have the blessings of the covenant. In Isaiah 65, remember, Isaiah is talking about, in his context, he's talking about the Jewish people. 
And he's, in his context, he's not talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about the people that call themselves the covenant people of God. The people that call themselves part of the covenant have never actually called on his name. That's why he's saying, here I am, over here. Look at me. You, you're doing all this. You think you're part of the covenant, but you're not. You must call on him. The scripture is full of this in the Old and New Testaments. You must believe on him. And like I'm saying in this crowd to who I'm talking to right now, you are not, and he's saying it here, he's really saying to them, you're not even acting like Jewish people. He says, you're a nation that's not acting like a nation. (laughs) And the word in the Hebrew is the word goy. He's saying to them, you're acting like Gentiles. That's what goy is talking about. That's the term they use for Gentiles. It's a rebuke. Yet, yet, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The Messiah will come, and the nations, the goyim, plural, will inquire. The Gentiles will come. People who aren't part of the covenant, they will come. Isaiah 42, verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Messianic prophecies. To do, it says in verse 7, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things I have come to pa- have come to pass, and new things I now declare, before they spring forth I tell you of them. He's talking about the Messiah. He says, He's, I'm sending my Messiah. He will save the remnant, the true Israel, that was there in Isaiah in the Old Testament. He saved them. He saves true Israel today, Jewish people who come to faith in Christ. He saves true Israel today, Gentiles who come to faith in Christ. He does that for his glory. We're unlikely to follow unless God does a work we won't follow. And you have no part in his name. And you could be thinking you're part of the covenant, but the reality is that you don't have part in his name again. The translation is off a little bit. Uh, called by my name, it's on my name. In the Masoretic text, uh, you have no part in his name. You can be part of the covenant, you think that you are, and not have any part in his name. So the availability of God was the first thing that we looked at. And the announcement of God, but now in verse 2 we have the appeal of God. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good and following their own devices. The appeal of God is this. Um, Paul's again applying this now to the Jewish apostate, the pretender to the covenant. He appeals first of all to the rebel. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people. What a picture of God. And his covenant people 
walking in rebellion against God. And all the time, he's there with his arms spread out. Come to me. Here I am. Here I am. What are you waiting for? He appeals to the rebel. He appeals to the immoral. All the day to rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good. The word good means morally excellent. These are people that are immoral. God says to them, here I am, to the immoral. You say, I can't come to Christ because I'm a wicked sinner. God stands there and he says, here I am. And he welcomes you. He calls you to repent and believe the gospel. Look at Isaiah 65, verse 3. Look at the immorality that we're talking about here when we're talking about in this context. A people who provoke me to my face continually. That's who he's calling out to. Sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eats pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. They're not even obe- they're calling themselves part of the covenant, but they're not following the dietary laws. And they're offering up sacrifices to idols. So you got idolatry, you got breaking of the dietary laws. These people, by the standard of the law of God, are immoral. They're not good, as the text says. They're walking, they're ordering their lives. Remember we talked about that in Ephesians 5. Ordering their lives in a way that is immoral. Not only appeals to the immoral, he appeals to the selfish. Because they're following their own devices. Some translations have this, their own thoughts, following their own thoughts. They're selfish. Narcissists, just thinking only of themselves. And all the time, they're thinking that they're right with God. They're self-righteous. Verse 5, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. I've got it going on. I'm part of the covenant. I'm too holy for you. While they live like that. That's the appeal of God. That's who God appeals to. Sinful people inside and outside the covenant. He appeals to you and God commands all men everywhere to repent. So I just plead with you. Are you a rebel? Are you immoral? Are you selfish? Then you are like so many who consider themselves to be part of the covenant but who are not. Are you seeking God? No. Are you seeking after him? No. Perhaps He'll be gracious to you. Perhaps he'll say to you, here I am. Maybe he'll call your name like he called out Lazarus, a dead man. A dead man who, by the way, couldn't do anything. He couldn't do it unless Jesus called his name. He calls him by name and he comes out dead. Behold, he stinketh. Right? For the King James people. Behold, he stinketh. He co- that guy stinks. Why are you rolling the tomb open? Because I got plans for this dead guy. I'm going to give him life. And maybe what will happen today is that Christ will call your name. I hope so. Are you pridefully convinced that you're part of the covenant when you live like a pagan? If you have not answered when called, you cannot hear when spoken to, and you continue in evil deeds, you will face judgment. Look at verse 11 of Isaiah 65. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune 
and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword. And all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. You've heard the call of the gospel, yet you appear to be tone deaf to it and have never repented or placed your faith in Christ. So my question is, what makes you think that you are a part of the people of God? You have either repented or you haven't. You've either placed your faith in Christ or you haven't. And this needs to be dealt with urgently because remember, all the time, God is sitting there with his arms wide open saying, here I am, here I am. He's repeating it. He's right in front of you. Just repent and place your faith in Christ. And if you do that, it'll be because God has done a work and again, not because you're smarter than everybody else. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we come before you. We're humbled by the text. It, it leaves us in a place where all we can do, no matter who's in the room, where all we can do is sit back and say, what an amazing gospel is this, that someone who has a hard, sinful heart like mine could be reached out to by the God of this universe who's saying, here I am, here I am. Why would he ever, ever want me? The answer is that he is a God of love. All of it. In love, he predestined us. Lord, I pray that you would do a work that is beyond my ability to do anything. There's no words, there's no physical ability that I have to get anybody to repent and believe the gospel. But Lord, you are the one who does that. And so we entrust every single soul that's seated here to your care. And we ask, Lord, that you would bring those that are your elect and that they would come. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.